from DLA Piper. This is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Samantha Heifetz, Jeff Sai, and Justin Sarno discuss the potential impact of U.S. Supreme Court case, Tyler versus Hennepin County. Welcome everyone to DLA's Beyond the Curve podcast. My name is Justin Sarno. I am a certified appellate specialist in the state of California and a member of DLA's appellate advocacy practice. Today, I'm pleased to introduce two partners here at DLA, Samantha Heifetz, who's recently joined the firm as co-chair of the appellate advocacy practice, and Jeff Sai, who's both the co-chair of DLA's state attorney's general practice and the managing partner of our San Francisco office. But before we dive into the subject of today's podcast, I'd like Samantha and Jeff to introduce themselves briefly. Samantha? Thanks so much, Justin. I have joined the firm about two months ago, so quite recent, and I am thrilled to be here co-chairing the appellate advocacy practice. I've come from government, where I was a longtime member of the appellate staff of the civil division at the Justice Department and held various positions around the federal government at various points, including most recently as the deputy counsel to the vice president. Thank you so much, Samantha. Jeff, over to you. Hey, it's great to be with you today, Justin. I didn't realize that you had also taken on podcasting (laughs) host duties. So congratulations. I think you probably already have enough to do. But it's great to be with you guys. Looking forward to this conversation. My name is Jeff Sai. I am a litigation partner in DLA Piper's San Francisco office. I'm also the co-chair of our state attorney's general enforcement practice, which I think has a lot of interesting intersecting issues that relate to what we're going to talk about today. Like Sam, I'm also a former government justice department lawyer, and I also spent time in the California AG's office, also under former AG Kamala Harris as a special assistant attorney general. So a lot of interesting experiences that I had from a federal and state perspective, and hopefully will contribute in a good way to the conversation we're going to have today. Thanks so much for being here. We're here to talk today about the case of Tyler versus Hennepin County a case that was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court on April the 26th. To set the stage, in 1999, Geraldine Tyler bought a one-bedroom condo in Minneapolis that she called home until 2010, when she says that rising crime in the neighborhood alarmed her, so she rented an apartment in a safer area. After she moved, she suffered some financial difficulties, and about $2,300 in unpaid property taxes accrued on the condo. In 2015, the total tax debt that Tyler owed to Hennepin County, Minnesota was $15,000. But the county seized title and sold her condo for $40,000. That is $25,000 more than her original tax debt. Pursuant to Minnesota state law, the county kept all the money. Now, Tyler, a widow in her 90s, brought suit to challenge the county's action. She argued that by holding on to the surplus from the sale... The county effectuated a taking under the Fifth Amendment, entitling her to just compensation. She also argued that she was subjected to an unconstitutionally excessive fine in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The district court and a three-judge panel of the Eighth Circuit all ruled in favor of Hennepin County. Both courts concluded that Ms. Tyler had no protected interest in the value of her property, which exceeded what she owed. The Supreme Court accepted the case and certified two questions for review. The first, whether Hennepin County violated the Fifth Amendment's takings clause. And second, whether the county ran afoul of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines. 
So before we dive into the legal issues, I'm curious what you both think this case represents. It's been referred to as a case of home equity theft or David versus Goliath. What are your thoughts, Sam? Well, I suppose you could call it David versus Goliath, although here's an instance where both David and Goliath have really excellent legal counsel. This was Neil Katyal's 50th appearance before the court, and Pacific Legal Foundation has had no less than three cases up before the court this term, and they including the case on behalf of Ms. Tyler. I think that the David versus Goliath idea, though, resonates that it seems like the government has gone too far. This particular type of event of loss of a home because of tax debt really does affect a lot of older, poorer Americans. Because of that, you get this interesting mix of people showing up in the case in support of Ms. Tyler. It's not often that you see Public Citizen and the Cato Institute filing briefs on behalf of the same party or ARP and the Chamber of Commerce. It all speaks to the fact that this is a case that has resonated in favor of petitioner at a gut level for a lot of people. But there's really interesting legal questions that are implicated here because of the way that this case arises at the intersection of states' authority to define property rights, to impose tax schemes, and taking jurisprudence. It's an interesting case in the way that it is pushing the envelope, but presenting a narrative that makes it feel natural to sympathize with the petitioner. I wonder whether this is even a case of so much David versus Goliath as maybe Goliath versus Goliath, or maybe framed differently, who in this metaphor is David and who is Goliath? Because you've got not just big government against elderly woman, you've actually got states against states. Some have these similar statutes on the books and others don't. I think that is in part what has created a very interesting moment right now in what the Supreme Court is looking at, because it speaks to some core questions about what a government's entitled to do and can do. And it doesn't just affect your average elderly grandmother. It can affect businesses. It can affect nonprofits and everyone in between. What I think has made this case interesting to people, from law nerds to regular people on the street, is that the symbol of the case, Ms. Tyler, is very sympathetic. Right. She is not a 25-year-old upwardly mobile person who's got graduate degrees and has lost his or her house. It's an entirely different set of circumstances. And in many states, like California, but I would suspect virtually around the country, there are laws specifically designed to protect the elderly. Do you think that there's some sort of visceral aversion that comes up when you see an issue like the one in this case? To your point about the baseline proposition of this is an elderly woman who got her property taken away. For me, the answer is yes, because everything is about symbols, especially in cases. So when you see certain press conferences that happen on the steps of the Supreme Court building where you have the representative for a case, that person is less important for her case in particular than what she symbolizes. And I think Ms. Tyler is a really good example of that. Sam, what do you think? This was a well-chosen test case in terms of the litigant, the plaintiff, ultimately the petitioner. 
And it was well designed in the strategic choices that were made to wind up with a case where the issue that the court is most likely to rule on is the takings issue, which is the one that Pacific Legal Foundation was most wanting them to address. And you've got states who have filed amicus briefs, and I don't think it's accidental how in Sean Reyes's amicus brief that he filed on behalf of a few different states, they don't talk about the excessive fines issue. They don't talk about due process. They talk about takings because it is that kind of touchstone issue with the symbol of Miss Tyler that appeals to some of these core issues that a lot of AGs have talked about for a long time. That is how to balance the interests of government with ensuring rights of individuals and businesses. Because ultimately, for state AGs, they're consumer protection agencies, offices. That's what they do. So this is for those AGs that filed their own brief. I think it's very consistent with what they've tried to put forward. This is really interesting because we have a number of states filing in support of petitioner, but there are a dozen states plus the District of Columbia that have schemes that in some sense resemble Minnesota's. And though there are variations in how they work, allow this kind of retaining of surplus following a sale to recover a tax debt. So there's this group of states that ostensibly would align with Hennepin County with the respondent here. And I believe only three of them joined together to file an amicus brief in support of Hennepin County. Only a minority of the states who one would think would have an interest. I would pay good money to have been a fly on the wall in some of the internal discussions in these state AG offices as they were debating what to do with this case, whether to weigh in, on whose side to weigh in, like D.C., where I am, ultimately making the decision to sit this one out. That's why I think the reference, Justin, that you made in your first question to whether this is David versus Goliath, and maybe it's Goliath versus Goliath, is because to extend the metaphor, it speaks to an issue that is almost biblical, right? And we're talking about statute of Gloucester in this particular case. It goes back almost as far as it seems to biblical days. It brings it back to this notion of states that are essentially adverse to other states. And then those that have this same law in the books, where do they stand in this whole fight? Yeah, I think you both speak to a very important issue that I think even the Chief Justice recognized during his questioning. I think he posed the question of whether or not this were better left for an issue of state sovereignty. And he cited the deeply rooted history in the state of Virginia as being one of the first states in the Union who had laws that were akin to the ones that are at issue here in Minnesota. So dovetailing to that, is this a concern in which the federal government should be weighing in from a taking standpoint, or is this better left to individual state rights? Well, I will quickly say that at least with reference to core state AG issue, that the issue of state sovereignty is paramount until it's not paramount. In this particular instance, you've got several states, including the great states of Utah, Arkansas, Kentucky, and Texas was in this particular amicus brief, where the issue of state sovereignty, exactly as you framed it, 
Justin gives way in this particular circumstance to the issue of takings and that broader federal constitutional issue because it serves to exemplify what a lot of these AGs have been advocating for a long time now, which is trying to create a regulatory scheme in their states that is more hospitable for certain entities, individuals, et cetera, right? That's been a lot of what they have run on, for example, in their own campaigns. And in this instance, I think it's consistent. It's just utilizing the different levers of the law to be able to push that forward. Sam, I'm really curious to get your take on the United States having come in as an amicus in this case in support of neither party. What do you make of that? Do you think that that was a particularly surprising aspect of this case? The United States participates quite often in the Supreme Court as amicus when it's an issue that implicates federal interests. And here, takings jurisprudence, the application of the Fifth Amendment certainly implicates federal interest. And the United States takes seriously the idea, this role as the 10th justice, as it's been described, of giving the court its real views of what the right answer under the law is. Here, there's a real concern for the United States that the Supreme Court needs to get takings jurisprudence right. That is the U.S.'s pocketbook on the line. They're the defendant in plenty of takings actions. And here, if you write the decision in the wrong way, you can potentially have implications for the regulatory taking space. Parties will frequently ask for meetings with the Solicitor General, come in and make a presentation, try to win over the SG's office with why they think the U.S. should come in as amicus in support of their side. And after that meeting, there'll be an internal process to decide what the U.S. should do. In this case, that was probably a really interesting time because on the one hand, there's obviously the governmental concerns about takings expansion. And on the other hand, the sympathetic nature of the case, the considerations around getting takings law right, and concerns as well about the Eighth Amendment piece and making the government's views on that known. Jeff, did you think that the county's argument, hearkening back to pre-Magna Carta era, was in any way compelling or advanced their position meaningfully? It's sometimes hard to discern how much you can rely or crutch upon history. It's a guide, but it rarely is the dispositive issue. And I think that that's the case here, because as much as history serves as a guide in terms of potentially helping to facilitate the argument that there is a basis by which the state, and I'm talking about the government writ large, can take one's property. There's also the larger argument at stake, one that I noticed the justices continued to go back to singularly and collectively throughout all the arguments, which is is it in fact more of a tradition and more deeply rooted the fact that there is long-standing respect for the sovereignty of one's property, personal property, real property? And to me, I think that's what it's going to come down to. I think that's why the viewpoint of the United States on this issue is probably going to be the most instrumental issue amongst all of the different things that have been raised. Because where in this particular case the United States lands, it really, I think, in this particular case will end up making a difference. There are all of these other 
sticky issues that are out there that are somewhat at play, but not directly, right? Issues related to excessive fines, issues related to due process. And what it seemed clear to me is that everyone was pretty clear that they didn't want to touch some of those third rail issues. My own view is, despite the fact that they are implicated, they're kind of, as it was described in the case in another context, the shadow that follows the body in some of this context, the reason why it's not going to ultimately be, in my opinion, what the court goes to is because it raises so many other complicated issues as it relates to what the government's entitled to do when it comes to penalties, civil penalties, with a lot of our federal agencies, for example. Those are truly complicated issues. They impact our clients, for example, every single day. You can see how there's significant overlap. I think, though, the court's going to want to try to inoculate this case from a lot of those other issues, and it'll be left to practitioners like Sam, you, and Justin to figure out in terms of later in the day, however this case lands, how it's ultimately going to impact other cases and the jurisprudence that exists out there related to civil penalties in the regulatory context. Well, and when you talk about complicated issues, the U.S.'s position is this really important doctrinal point describing what constitutes the taking, not the extra money after the sale, but the moment that absolute title was taken to full ownership of the condo property itself. The difficulties, though, that this creates, it, as Justice Sotomayor said, it throws a bomb into things, as Justice Kagan and others highlighted, it creates real complexity in the workability of the scheme if you think that the taking happens when title is taken. Now, the good news, bad news is that there's a lot of options for writing around the problems. You have states with recognized authority to design their taxation schemes with authority to define property rights, even if they can't go so far as doing what was done here, there's still a lot of space for states to operate. What I was hearing was that for every problem that came up in the argument, there was someone with an idea of a way to write around it. One of the goals will probably be for the court to send it back with a number of unanswered questions to be worked out in the lower courts, but also ultimately for the states to think hard about and figure out how to design their taxation systems to address whether that means, for example, having a statutory scheme that makes clear from the outset that you will get your compensation, but it will be valued and determined at the time of the sale of the property and making that part of the state-defined property right. The short of it is just that a lot of problems surface during the argument, but there seem to be a number of ways to address those in the courts and in the states. And that was true for excessive fines, too. And I think, frankly, therein lies the complexity of why we most likely will not see an excessive fines discussion or ruling because when you go down that particular rabbit hole, you then implicate another line of jurisprudence altogether as it relates to what ultimately is, what are they trying to achieve? Is there a deterrence issue? How is the penalty scheme being applied? And is it fair in the process? I agree with Sam's description that there's ways of drafting around this kind of takings issue. It's interesting because I think that it will likely result for those states that might then look at this and think about drafting around it. It might bring us back to the court again. 
So this potentially is a comet with a very, very long tail. And I think that, at least from my read of both the oral argument, the briefs, that's what I think the court is going to be struggling with, is how can they craft a decision in this case that will allow them to inoculate this case in terms of preserving the structure of its existing jurisprudence without having to dive into super complicated issues of the manner in which we do penalties for various violations in this country, as well as fundamental questions about due process. It's clear from my standpoint that this case implicates a lot of really interesting issues, and it's going to be very intriguing to see how the court ultimately shakes out on this. I'm curious what each of your concluding thoughts are on it. Like all of the opinions that come down in late June, this one will be a very interesting one to see, more so for a lot of the political dynamic that's going on with the court right now and trying to figure out how to bring as much as possible unanimity in some of these decisions that the court brings, as opposed to your 5, 4, 6, 3, et cetera type decisions. And this might very well be one of those that you see a unanimous court that I think has itself big implications for the meaning of what that case stands for. That's in addition to what you've seen with the United States being involved. I'm looking forward to seeing it, but most of all, from a very human level, looking forward to Ms. Tyler seeing hopefully a very good series of additional twilight years where she gets to spend it with her family and put this issue behind her. Yep. That's a great point. One thing I think that gets overlooked is that the court is frequently every term finding common ground. We see deep divides, but unanimous decisions still remain over the last 20 years, the outcome that is more likely than any other result. In 2021, more than 40% of the rulings were unanimous. And that's just not a statistic that people would necessarily anticipate because focus tends to be elsewhere. This is a case where you have both significant attention to the case, but also the potential for a lot of agreement on the court. Well, thank you so much, Samantha and Jeff, for joining us today. It was a pleasure tackling these issues with you both. I appreciate all of your fantastic insights, and we look forward to continuing these important discussions here at DLA's Beyond the Curve podcast. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLI Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel and the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. Thank you.